Micah chapter 7. What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit. At the gleaning of the vineyard, there is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my cause and upholds my cause. My, until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for the building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, the people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago, as in days when you came out of Egypt. I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground, they will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. The word of the Lord. I have uh, known for many years. I actually met Chorus, uh, Corey uh, at seminary 
Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I think I probably met you in one of the language classes that we took together. Uh, Corey came from Gordon College and had taken all the language classes. And so when I had a question or didn't know what was going on in my Greek class, I would go and I would talk to Corey and he would do a little bit of tutoring uh, with me. And what I learned about Corey and what I still know about Corey uh, is that he truly and deeply loves God's word. Uh, he loves studying God's word in uh, kind of those ancient languages, the languages that the Bible was written in and, and given to us. And so I hope that you will hear his love for God's word tonight and that it will impart a little bit more of a love for God's word in your heart as well. So let's welcome Corey up. I'm used to saying good morning, so I want to make sure I get good evening, not, it is not the morning. It's very different. Um, yeah, I do, I do love the Bible. I really, really do. And it's because I, I, I believe that the Bible tells the story of Jesus, and I really love Jesus. He's just totally transformed my whole world, the way I think about everything, the way I see everything and everyone around me. So, um, Man, it's really good to be here. I know every, every guest speaker is supposed to say that, but it really is to serve alongside uh, Jonathan, who we have been through the trenches of Greek together, and uh, as well as Terry, another good friend of mine that I've known for years, um, to be here and to serve in preaching and teaching. It's great. I spent a lot of time behind the scenes helping other pastors get into the pulpit and get into the scriptures, so to get kind of more on the front lines is uh, really a uh, joy. Of course, that comes with with a great responsibility of closing out the book of Micah. Like, like that's, that's what I get for, for this. I mean, what a weighty, weighty charge. I hope that you have loved this book. I hope that it has challenged you, has awakened a deep, profound of God's justice and working in the world because it truly is an incredible book. And rather than, um, rather than sum up the book and kind of close it out as Jonathan kind of did Last week, what I thought we would do is kind of step back and instead of, I mean, we're going to get to Micah 7, I want to get there, but I want to take a kind of step back and do a flyover, if you will, of the story of Scripture. And I think that what we'll do is if you have a Bible, you can go to Micah 7, just know that we are going to take some time to get there. Um, but I think it's helpful to see what's going on here in the book of Micah and all these, these woes and these charges with the leadership as something that's playing out in a bigger story. And these mixes of, of, of what uh, Terry, Terry called just a couple weeks ago, what the Super Bowl of the Bible, the Old Testament, right? These incredible passages occur within this larger story, and I think it would be helpful, helpful to get there. So go to Micah, but be patient with me uh, as we get there. We are, um, my wife and I are about to welcome our second, second child, the baby boy, coming in a couple months. So if you see her and she looks tired, she's growing a human constantly. She may be sitting and resting, but she's actually growing another human. And we have a little two-year-old. And what's incredible, if you have kids or if you've been around kids at all, it's, it's just me. But I feel like if you look at a child, you see like a microcosm of what it means to be a human. Do you feel me? Like my little baby girl is one of the kindest, sweetest little girls you will ever meet. 
I'm not biased at all. Trust me. I mean, she, she likes to clean up, like likes to help Mama Nava to clean up in the house. She likes to put toys away. She likes to give hugs. She, you know, if, if something's wrong, she can tell that we're upset. She wants to, to comfort us or give hugs, and she wants to give hugs to her friends. Sometimes that looks more like a tackle, but you'd, I mean, she's a really sweet little girl. But she's a two-year-old, Right? And two-year-olds, as all kids, right, they see something like a toy or anything that's in another kid's hands, a friend of theirs. It's not even her toy. She sees it. She wants it. What does she do? She takes it. This sweet girl that's loving and caring and, and so kind to us and, and, you know, hugs and the whole deal. She sees something that she wants, and all of a sudden you have, like, the complete opposite script plays out, right? She sees it. She wants it, she takes it. And to me, when I watch this, this little sweet girl, it's like, it's like a, a condensed, small little version of being a human. That you and I, if we're honest, I think, we have such potential to be giving, to be kind, to comfort one another. And yet somehow on a dime, we can switch into this, like, I see it, I want it, and I will use everything in my power to take it. Now, what's so profound about the scriptures is they're onto us. The scriptures is not blind to this basic human condition that we all share. If you've maybe, I don't know if, if you guys do, but our church is a few of us, friends, we're going through the story of Scripture just on a reading plan to read through the Bible. We start in the beginning, we end in the end. Very simple, straightforward. And when you read that story, and I was reminded of it again, it's just this basic human condition gets played out on page three of the Bible. I mean, just right out of the get-go, what happens? God, in all his goodness and his power, is a creator. He stands over the creation, and it's chaotic. It's total disorder. And what does he do? He speaks and light steps on to the field. He brings order, orders the days that there is evening and morning and all the disorder and chaos becomes order. What is inhabitable becomes habitable and what has no inhabitants has inhabitants, particularly us humans. And we are put there, made in God's image and likeness to rule and to reign, to extend God's goodness into the creation. And God says this is very good. God is the definer of what is right and wrong, good and evil, says this is very good. Everything is in a proper place. Where there is no vegetation and habitation, God brings vegetation, plants a garden, and puts man, puts humanity in it to keep it, to work it. And all seems to be right. And if you've continued this story, or I don't know if there's a movie, certainly VeggieTales has captured this, I'm sure, like a dozen times with different fruit and vegetables. But nevertheless, if you continue reading, what do you see? This lasts for about 0.2 seconds, right? Chapter 3. This strange creature, this serpent, okay, he steps onto the scene, like how Slytherin or something if you're into Harry Potter. If you're not, just ignore that. He steps on the scene and he offers this temptation that you, humanity, who God has provided all good things, you have an opportunity to seize for yourself autonomy from God. And if you remember, how does it play out? She sees this fruit that would give her Autonomy, make her like God. She desires it, and she takes it. She sees it, she wants it, she takes it. 
And how does that play out? Where once there was no shame, where once God had placed humanity to rule and to reign, to subdue all the creatures, now that whole thing has been flipped upside down. Now the serpent has the upper hand. Now God's people are in shame and hiding from God. Everything goes amok with this seeing, wanting, taking. And so God steps in, not a God who is apathetic and shying away from judgment. He steps in and judges the serpent, the woman, the man. He steps in to declare what they have done is wrong and there are consequences for their actions. And that consequence is is being exiled, kicked out of the garden. This is the opening stories of our Bible. And if you keep reading, you see this play out in a thousand different ways with a thousand different things that people want or desire or take. Even the great our father, our father Abraham, who gets this promise that through him there will be someone that will come and reverse the curse to bring blessing and back to order where there is disorder and curse and chaos. Even he gets it wrong. He mistreats, along with his wife, this maidservant. And the whole thing just keeps on this repeated cycle through Abraham's children. And if you're, if you're you know, kind of paying attention, you feel like, at least, at least this has been my experience, that I keep getting interrupted with these genealogies. It seems like everybody wants to know who's related to who. But this is tracing out this promise that God makes that through Abraham's line, God will undo what has been done. He will write the wrongs. He will confront the evil and the injustice and bring things back to how he originally intended them. Of course, along the way, if, you, if the story continues, it's not just that God's people are the oppressors or doing the wrong or seeing and taking, but also they get the, the shoes on the other foot when they get down to Egypt and a new pharaoh comes on the scene and him, with no limits to his power, is humanity just on full display. He has so redefined what is right and wrong that he oppresses the people of Israel in slavery and is enacting this mass genocide. But God is not one to shy away from confrontation or judgment. He steps onto the scene, enter God's stage right. I remember my covenant and I will act. And he brings this shepherd, Moses figure, to lead the people out and crushes Pharaoh and his army. The way it describes it, this beautiful, beautiful poem in Exodus 15 is he tosses them all into the sea, kind of returns the chaos that they have brought into this world back on themselves. And if you keep reading this story over and over, the, the cycle continues of Israel, now rescued, then becomes the oppressors themselves, then becomes the ones that reject God. And, and if you remember this famous incident of the golden calf, they, they have their own gods and worship their own idols. Again, the cycle repeats that we are kind of two sides we can have. We can have this side that receives God's position and power and extends it for good into the world. Or we can be like Pharaoh or Israel in power where they seize it for themselves and then oppress others or distrust God, break his covenant. What we see in Micah, fast forward many hundreds of years, and many books later, if, if, you're, if you've got a reading plan, you're, you're months in by this time. You know, you've made it through Exodus, you've made it through Leviticus with all the sacrifices, you're into Joshua and Judges and the kings. You've come to the point where this cycle is repeated so much that God is not shying away from the confrontation. 
You've seen this over and over through the chapters of Micah where God makes a charge against the people, his lead, the leaders, that they too, through bribery, through, through misstepped in, uh, or I should say, just bad politics and, and corrupt religious leaders of bribes going back and forth, the people have, have really run amok. They've so redefined what is right and wrong. They're oppressing the poor. And injustice is just rampant throughout Judah. So that, with that in mind, and we come to a, a chapter like Micah 7, we're going to see that come forward. The charge against God's people, the confrontation and the punishment. But we're also going to see the God who promised to right the wrong step up to the plate as well. So there's, there's my intro. If you're still in Micah 7, that means you're, you survived this, this update on the story. Congrats. We're going to go to Micah 7, and we're just going to walk through it so that the point, the driving thrust of this that encourages us to hope in this God is going to have its punch. So Micah chapter 7, verse 1. I know your translation, what did your translation have? Something, I have woe is me, or, or, or this, there's a complete... In the face of all that's gone wrong, Micah the prophet or someone speaking on behalf of the community says, this is utter disaster. I'm like going out to my garden to get some fruit. And what happens? There's nothing there. That surveying the land of of Judah, like you're going out to pick some fruits and vegetables from your garden. There's no clusters to eat. There's nothing I desire. And this, this kind of picture is almost like Similar to actually, my, my wife and I had a, little, had a little garden at one of our places, mostly my wife. I was not much for being a green thumb. But she, she would go out there and she'd work and she'd have to, you know, constantly weed, try to take out all the bad stuff so that the good stuff could go through. And I think we had, we had like a little bunny or something that was eating up everything, right? And this is the kind of perspective that the prophet, or kind of almost speaking from God's perspective, steps out and surveys Judah and says, look, there's, there's no goods out here. This garden's got to run amok. What does he mean by that? If we look to verse 2, he kind of gives it some concreteness. I said, all the godly have perished from the land. The upright, there's no, there's no upright in the, among men. All of them are like waiting for bloodshed. They're violent. Each against his neighbor, they hunt with a net. They got both hands full of evil to do it well. You've got this, this, the, the government, the rulers asking for bribes, the judges, and then the rich one, the one who's got the power and influence, using that power and influence to get what he wants. The perfect yin and yang of a society that has run amok. And so he says in verse 4, if you're, if you're following along here, he says in verse 4 that the best of them are like briars, the upright are like a thorn hedge. Again, continuing this metaphor, this analogy with this idea of, of the people being like a garden. You see something similar, if you're familiar, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, where God talks about the people of Judah and Israel as a garden that he's planted. And then he comes out to see what he can gather up, and it's nothing but rotten fruit. He's looking, and then he kind of lands it with this. He's looking for justice, but he finds bloodshed and violence and injustice. He's looking for righteousness, but he finds just absolute outcry from the poor and the needy. The society has been so corrupted with this, I see what I want, I desire it, and I take it, that I will use all means, all of my power, 
to pursue my own interest, whatever the cost. And so what is coming? Second half or back half of, of verse 4 says that judgment is coming. Judgment. God confronts the wickedness and evil, even amongst his people. And if you've tracked with the story, and I, I think Jonathan has already touched on this, the coming bad guys here are the Assyrians. They're coming, and they come and devastate the land through Judah. They, they uproot Israel and take them out into exile, and they come right up almost like right to the neck of almost Judah's like drowning in this siege that comes right up to Jerusalem. And at the last minute, God enters in and rescues. But that's not the end of the story because the people persist in their wickedness and their evil. And so God's going to send the Babylonians and they're going to come through. And this time is really going to matter because they're going to take them all out and exile. This is nothing more than the garden story all repeated again. God had placed them in the land. They're supposed to keep it to uphold their partnership with God to do what is right and they fail to, and so there are consequences. Verse 5, we start to get, here's some advice maybe that we, how we should act in these troubled times. And basically he says, don't trust anybody. Nobody. Everyone's out for themselves. You can't trust a soul, even the people in your own household. Even says, uh, it says, in-laws, Right? I know some of us are probably thinking, especially in-laws, right? I'm going to say even in-laws, because my in-laws are actually in the room, okay? So it is definitely even in-laws, right? I mean, that's the worst, right? No, 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 no. The society is all run amok. If everyone is just this see, desire, take, there is no justice. Everyone is so redefining what is right and wrong in their own eyes that they'll do whatever and step on anyone else they need to to get what they want. In the midst of this, you have to ask, what are we to do? If you think, and if you are here in, in, in this modern world, you might be feeling something similar, where you feel like everything has been run amok, where everything is upside down, where justice is nowhere to be found, where right action as we treat one another based off whoever we interact with, whether it be at work or in our family or relationships or society at large, we might feel very much like this, where Everything has gone upside down. How are we to respond? If we continue in verse 7, I think there, this, is where the, this is where we can really start to feel the weightiness of the response that we are called to have in this situation. In verse 7, it says, But as for me, this being maybe the the prophet speaking, or someone representing the community. As for me, I will wait. I will watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Because he will hear me. The God who renders this judgment, the God who steps up to confront this evil, will also render a just verdict for me. And I'm going to trust in his definition of right and wrong over my own. Rather than take matters into my own hands, I'm going to look to him to right the wrongs. My hope, my trust, my waiting with expectation is in him. This is the response we are called to have. And so what is this response? How does this hope come about? He, look, he looks over to his enemy and says, you know, don't rejoice over me. I've fallen. 
I've done wrong. I've made mistakes. I've hurt those around me. My community has failed to uphold its side of the bargain with God, but I will rise. I may sit in darkness. My circumstance might be amok, but God is my light. The Lord is a light to me. Just like as we we kind of alluded to at the beginning, the Bible opens. The scriptures, the story that's told is in the midst of the chaos. God is the one who speaks light into existence. Here and now, this, this voice speaks a hope that God will speak light into existence again. This time granting salvation and rescue. Verse 9, the honesty here is, is just so profound. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, for I have sinned against him. The confession, the honest confession, owning it. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, for I have sinned against him until he pleads my case, until he does justice for me. He will bring me out into the light, and I will see his righteousness. At that time, my enemy will see and they will be covered with shame. This is the story flipped upside down. No longer humans that are in partnership with God bearing the shame. Now it is the enemy that will bear the shame. And the one who said, where is your God? Mocking those that are trusting God. They will bear the shame. My eyes will see it. And they will be for the trampling of the muck and the mire outside. And that day, verse 11, will be for a building, an expanding of territory. This, is, this language here is coming from the promise that God will expand the territory of his people so that God may dwell with them. Think of Solomon building the temple. Restoration will come. And at that time, even though even though the city and the, the land lays in utter chaos and disorder, verse 13, the prophet has hope. It's in spite of all the circumstantial evidence, he's saying, no, I will hope against all hope in the God who is my judge. If we continue on in verse 14, what's so important here is then this, this hope turns to a prayer. A prayer hoping and trusting and asking God to shepherd his people like he did from days of old. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the sheep of your inheritance, and those that dwell far and alone. Let them come into the pastures. This imagery of of asking for a new exodus, a new deliverance. This is the hope. This is the hope that we are called to have. This is the hope that the prophet has in these troubled times. And as days of old, when you came up out of Egypt, and I will see the great wonders and the great deliverance that God brings about, that is the hope that he's having. Now we turn in verse 16, again to this notion that to be a deliverance for the people, the enemy, the nations around that have done injustice must be put in their place. So he says in, in verse 16, the nations will see And they will be ashamed over all their mighty deeds. They will set their hand upon their mouth and they will not be speaking. The same people that are mocking God's people will now be silent in the sight of their vindication. And this is the kicker. 
This is the kicker for me, at least. This is my, my mini little World Series or, or Super Bowl. Verse 17, remembering the story that we rehearsed here. In verse 17, they, the enemies, those that have oppressed the people of God, they will lick the dust like the serpent, like the creepy things upon the earth. The serpent figure emerges again, that enemy that has tempted and, and destroyed the relationship that God has with his people, who will be put out, humbled, subdued again, eating the dust, this imagery of being humbled at the feet. And they will be in trembling out of their strongholds to the Lord their God. They will be in fear. They will be in dread. This is the hope. You and I are experiencing something that is not a one-to-one, but in, in corresponding where the injustices of our world and the injustice that we have caused in other people's lives by this seeing and desiring and taking. In the response to that, we're called to hope in a God that doesn't simply confront the evil out there, but confronts the evil and wickedness in our own hearts. We're to hope in him and hope and trust in his judgment. Let him define what is right and wrong. But why? What is the basis of this hope? And that's where we land this passage in the last three verses of the book of Micah. Why have this hope in this God, this judge? Verse 18, it says, Who is like you, O God? The one who forgives iniquity. The one who passes over transgression for the remnant of his people. God's character and his judgment on our wickedness is overcome by his mercy and goodness to forgive, to deal with the sin problem in our hearts. He forgives He passes over rebellion. This has been the story over and over, despite all the wrong that the humans in this story have done, despite having such potential and yet realizing it in disappointing ways over and over. God is still present, still engaging, still reaching out in grace and mercy and goodness. He will not be angry forever, for his delight is in loyal love or loving kindness. This is the, this is the Micah 6, 8 that is your, your theme verse here. The one who loves, loves mercy. God is the one who loves mercy most perfectly. He is a God of justice, but he's a God who loves mercy and loves extending mercy to his people. And so on the basis of this, we know that he will again have compassion on us, verse 19, subduing our iniquities and tossing them into the depths of the sea. Just as God has conquered the enemies of old with his deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, so again he will conquer our sin by tossing it into the depths of the sea, returning it back to its chaotic place that it came from. And so the basis of our hope is in the character of God, a God who loves mercy, loves to forgive, loves to extend grace and mercy to us who have so wronged him. But there's a second part of it. And this is in verse 20 where we've seen over and over in the story that the God 
who has such character of grace is also the God of promise. You've seen this even through Micah, right? In Micah 5, this promise of one to come. Here it gets this little bit of snapshot and just a handful of words that he will give faithfulness to Jacob, loving kindness to Abraham, which he promised to the fathers of old. God is not just a God who loves mercy, but out of that mercy he has made a promise. A promise that through the line of Abraham, there would be one to come that would crush the serpent, that would deal with the injustices of the world. From our vantage point now, fast forward from the days of Micah, we get to sit at a vantage point that sees that come to reality in Jesus. That Jesus has come to fulfill a promise. He hasn't simply come to, to, to this kind of random act of rescue. No, it's actually part of this long-standing waiting and expecting and hoping in God. Jesus steps on the scene to fulfill a promise made long ago that God would right all the wrongs that we have done. And he comes in all of the hurt that we have caused one another, hurt that has been done to us, the injustices we have brought into this world. Jesus absorbs them into himself and takes it to the cross. And it's there at the cross that God deals in a final way with our sin, with our injustice, with our wrongdoing. He fulfills the promise for God to right all the wrongs that we have done. And so if this is where we stand as, as humans that have such great potential but often realize that in, in, in really poor, poor, disappointing ways, and if we're called to respond then in hope, we have to also always remember that we're called to hope because of God's character and his promise, his character of mercy and his promise most fully realized in Jesus. Take a moment here to kind of sit with this. I'm not sure how the exact order of the service might be a little different, but just to pause and to sit with this and for us all as people that have wronged others, have been wrong, to take this to Jesus, to ask him to forgive us where we have wronged others and to ask him to bring healing in our life and the ways that others have hurt us. So I want to pray for us briefly, but I'm going to give a moment to pause that we can all seek him and and really wrestle and resonate with some of this. I'm sure some of this does not all add up in our heads, but where it does, sit with it and let God and his spirit minister to you. <clears throat> Father, you are good and gracious and wonderful. You're also good to not, not hold back your judgment, not hold back your confrontation of evil and wickedness in this world. Oh, so we take this time to thank you for the cross. Thank you for your goodness in the cross to deal with our sin, to crush our enemies, to crush and deal with and condemn sin there in the person of Jesus. I pray that you would speak this word over us, this good news that we can hope in a God who is merciful and who has made promises that he has kept. I pray that you do that, your Holy Spirit, here and now in this place as we, as we sing, as we respond, and as we leave this place. Do it in Jesus' name. Amen.